MASH, and so eventually they came up with COM, and then I think they filled in the acronym. What's the craziest thing you've ever treated here? <laughs> it's funny because it's pretty obvious. One time this guy came here, and um, he had pretty bad diabetes. It's not funny. I mean, it's, it's funny, interesting, bizarre. And he was somebody who was very large, and he didn't really ever look at the below his legs. And he said his legs felt tingly and weird. And we asked him to roll his pants up, and they were maggots covering his leg on both sides. And basically, they were eating, they were eating the necrotic flesh. I mean, he had bad diabetes, which isn't funny at all. But I've never seen it. He just rolled it up. I'm telling you, just covered in maggots. He had no idea they were there. Oh and so we had a, we had one of the few times I flinched because I'm pretty good with blood and pus and pain and anger. I mean, all the stuff we see there. I mean, it's part of my life. But that was weird. What did you do? Uh, we got a nurse to come in. We started just pouring isopropyl alcohol to kill uh, the maggots on his leg. I mean, it makes sense. If you know what maggots do, they eat the outer flesh. Sometimes they use medicinally this way, but these were not medicinal. These were fly maggots. So. You feel like there isn't a separation between the rainbows and the outside world. Is that a unique perspective here? I don't really know. I imagine a lot of people, I mean, I bring 14 students, to, I run a school, an herb school in Ithaca, New York, and I bring 14 students or 16 students every year, and a lot of them don't really like the Rainbow Gathering and feel it's even more Babylon than out in the world, you know, more judgmental, more hypocritical, more misogynistic, I mean, and I see a lot of that here. And so I would say, I, I think a lot of people who feel that don't come to rainbow gatherings, but I like service, I like treating people. I would never come here without doing first aid. Like I have no interest in really in the drum circles or being a part of anything else, but I love service. And man, we're just crazily of service here. I spend a lot of money every year, bring a lot of medicines, and also it's a great uh, place to teach students. So what I really, to sum up the question, I think that most people who feel that way just wouldn't come here. Like I, I, have, I, have, uh, I do work plant walks here at 10 a.m., and when people say, how do I you know it's 10 a.m.? And I'll say, well, you look at your watch. And they'll say, I have the babylometer or something. And it's just like, it's just a simple little device. <laughs> there's nothing wrong. I mean, there's just nothing wrong with watches. I mean, if you're attached to your watch. So, I mean, that kind of stuff where it's just kind of reverse prejudice. What are the most common things you treat? That's uh, easy. Uh, foot problems, because lots of people not wearing shoes. And they, uh, a lot of, uh, well, a lot of it stems from what I call slocks, which is sudden loss of common sense. So people come out here and think, well, I'll just, I wear shoes all the time, everywhere, and I'm going to come to the woods and take off my shoes, you know? Yeah, right, and then they just have no idea how to be barefoot. I mean, some people here know how to be barefoot, but we don't see them. But we see lots of foot injuries, uh, lots of diarrhea and upset stomachs, headaches. Here at 9,000 feet, we see high altitude sickness with people not knowing what it is, dehydration, a lot of belly aches, a lot of inflammation, a lot of exacerbation of existing conditions because new environments and not the foods are accommodating and used to uh, eating. Those are some of them. Lots of things get in people's eyes. You're motivated by service. There's lots of places you could go to serve. Why here? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I started coming here 26 or 27 years ago when I had more of a belief system of what the Rainbow Gathering is. Most of that has petered away over the years. But there's very few places. I'm, I'm, a I'm an herbalist. And so there's just very few places an herbalist can get their hands on with a lot of practice. So you can go to like, I don't know, some kind of Woodstock 29 or something and maybe, but very few people. And most places I go and practice, people really want to see a doctor or a nurse. And I'm always, even though I've been studying for seven years, I'm often relegated to like a second, third or fourth position. And I'm pretty competent. I know a fair amount of diagnostics. I mean, I practice medicine, you know, and herbs are what I tend to give. I'm not a doctor. I'm not, I don't want to be a doctor. I'm an herb 
herbalist. And so here, um, lots of people are willing to see an herbalist and want to see an herbalist, and I get to really practice my craft, and I love first aid. I'm just, in Ayurveda, I'm very pitta, and I like, you know, blood and pus just excite me. <laughs> <laughs> How do you get along with the medical staff, the doctors and nurses? Oh, it just depends. You mean here? Uh, well, here, pretty good. I mean, at the past couple of years, I'm probably one of the focal points of calm. So if they want to work here, it's usually people, you know, it's these self-select things, you know. So these folks pretty much want to work here, and they know that I'm going to be here. Uh, most of the, I mean, most doctors who come here never say they're doctors, right? They just, they're having fun. They're not here to practice. The doctors who come here to practice, but we don't generally, have, most of the doctors don't spend much time in calm. So I don't, there's not really much tension because they're not really there to do that. You said your belief system has changed since 26 years ago, or what made your belief system change? Um, a lot of things have made my beliefs. I've become much more, I guess the word would be materialistic. I really believe in the biology of life and cells and interactions. The Rainbow Gathering to me has a tremendous amount of judgmentalness and, um, what's the word? People, not a lot of critical thinking, a lot of kind of belief in spirituality without a lot of uh, focus and presence and service in the world. And it's not an easy question to answer, but I guess just to become more thoughtful. And for me, I'm just indulging in my belief in science, really. And so a lot of things here have a strong spiritual values and uh, people can have spirituality. Lots of people do have spirituality, but it's not really the world that I'm from. I feel like here we are, we're presence, let's do what we can without, you know, relying on other deities or other aspects. And so a little more conservative is what I've become um, over the years. And also, I'll tell you, the drug use here makes me crazy. It's just such a drug indulgent culture often. I mean, I'm very libertarian and think that drugs should pretty much all be legal, but uh, recreational drugs, <laughs> yeah, many drugs need to be protected. And so, like that has just altered me seeing really what happens when people obsess over drug use. Not the occasional use of recreational drugs to enjoy themselves. That's fantastic. It's been used throughout history. But here people come and they just get wasted, a lot of them, without really enjoying the beauty of nature, not being an active part of this community. It always seems like maybe 10 or 15% of the people hold up the vast majority. And so seeing that made me, made me very sober when I was young. And like, how do I be a part of that? And I guess all of that leads to a kind of, um, like a presence on the earth, a physical terrain kind of orientation. I think that's about it. I can go on for hours. Oh my gosh, I could talk to you for hours. This was very helpful. Thank you very much. Thanks for doing this. My name is Josh Fox, and uh, come out here as an herbalist. Where are you from, Josh? I live in the Asheville area, oh, North Carolina. That's fantastic. You're a volunteer here at Calm, yeah. right? And um, tell us about the supplies here. What have we got? A lot of what we carry is uh, a lot of herbs that folks have harvested from their areas. A bunch of herbalists come out here and bring their medicines, which could be tinctures or salves or oils or dry plant matter. Then also some other uh, herbs that we harvest here on the site. Oh, are some of these that you found right here in the forest? Yeah. What are these? So these are leaves of uh, yarrow, Achillea millifolium. And uh, it's just a really great antibacterial. It grows all around the country. Good for cuts, burns, stopping bleeding, open wounds. How would you actually use that if someone came in bleeding? What would you do with it? Well, basically do a, what we call a spit poultice. It's where you chew up some of the leaves and the saliva. The enzymes in your saliva activate 
break open some of the cell walls, releasing the medicine, and we can just put that plant matter directly on the wounds. That's awesome. Yeah, I've, I know that um, I've heard that, well, animals lick their wounds, right? Sure. And saliva itself is good. Someone told me one time to that I should lick mosquito bites. Mm. Have you ever heard that? I've never heard of that. <laughs> heard of people using urine on things, but, you know, there's really powerful enzymes. Digestion starts in the mouth, so just the saliva is the first step to breaking things down which could be food that we're digesting, or it could be medicine to help get the right constituents out. What are these other herbs? This one looks like, um, I don't know, kind of scraggly hair. What is this that? This is uh, usnea. It's actually a lichen that grows on dead trees. Wow. That's for the bladder, I think? Um, some people use it for, uh, for kind of the kidney meridian, but I tend to use it myself for, to control strep throat. It's also strongly antibacterial. And Have you seen strep throat out here? A number of cases. Wow. That would be communicable, like, um, right? So it could yeah. spread. For, uh, definitely for bigger cases, we'll treat as much as we can and then try to keep those folks isolated. Um, but even for, this is a great herb, even for sore throats, itchy throats, to just prevent strep from coming in as much as treating it. You've got um, several, what, yards here of um, all kinds of different things. I see some things in bottles and what else have you got? This looks like, um, is that ginger root? Yeah, we have some full ginger root. We have some over-the-counter medicines that folks donate, different ibuprofens and things. Ginger root for, uh, to help with digestion, stomach aches, and also nausea. What's really. here in the box? These are mainly uh, tinctures, different uh, so alcohol-based medicines. We'll take plants that won't preserve on their own and we put them in alcohols. And essentially that will preserve it for three years or even longer. So we can bring different medicines from our parts of the world out here to use with the patients. What motivates you to come and serve at the gathering? There's, it's all like one big family here and my role, what I've been learning in the last six, seven years has been uh, healing people with plants. So that's the best way that I can help out the family here. Some are cooks, some uh, dig latrines for people to use and my role is kind of to work with the plants and help heal. What's the most unusual case you've had to deal with that worked with herbs? Um, you know, we see a lot of people. In the course of a day, I might see 40 different people, and uh, I'll give them herbs from any kind of condition, whether it's a bladder infection, a simple cough, a fever, um, a staph infection, and a lot of people I don't see again. So hopefully by not seeing them, we, I think uh, they've done well with the herbs. But rarely do we get people coming back here telling us, oh, this worked great, because when you're fine, you don't even think about your health anymore. It's really fantastic. Anything else you want to let our listeners know about Calm or about the gathering? Um, I've just seen, since I've been out here, I've seen such a resurgence in uh, herbal medicine. We, have, we used to have 10 or 20 people on plant walks. Now we have 50 or 60. And uh, people are realizing, you know, with the way the pharmaceutical industry is right now, that plants just can do so much for us. And there's such a future getting back into herbal medicine. 
You guys do a plant walk every morning, is that right? There's one every morning and usually a couple others, either from this camp or from another. Mushroom walks as well and yeah, assorted workshops of all kind out here at Rainbow. Is there one tomorrow morning or not because of the silence? Not tomorrow. The next day after they'll continue and yeah, some of them are more spiritual, some of them are more scientific. Depends who's leading the walk. You've been very kind. Thank you very much. I no appreciate problem. it. Yeah, thanks, thanks for coming out here and exploring. Thanks, thank you. Teriani Riggs. Great. So, Teriani, how many gatherings have you been to? I've been to, this is my 16th national and my 18th year of gathering. What brings you back? I think this is one of the most important annual experiments in creating a different world or creating a different society that's not based on hierarchy and is actually attempting to change the world from within and using a lot of us products of a dysfunctional culture to try to create a culture that works and finding the experience of anarchy not as just complete chaos but as just having control but not under anyone else's control is an exp interesting experiment to me and very vital to the work in the world because there's so much hierarchy and we've decided that hierarchy has such a high social cost that it's not really useful or, or worthwhile and here I've actually found having teamwork be higher functioning than a high functioning hierarchy and that surprised me because I believed like many others that hierarchy was the most highest functioning way of doing power but had too high a social cost and I found that in a medical emergency my team has worked just as well as any of my teams in the other world when I did search and rescue on an emergency. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you right now. I'm fine Jack. Well because the Leos are down over here in mass right now with their pepper spray guns. Okay. And I'll take I her just, down there after. I just want to make sure that nothing goes Sounds awry. good. So I'll take good. her over after. Okay. You want to walk down there with me or are you on um, I am. I'm not on calm. I'm on the radio. Do you okay. want to do that right now? I'd like to see what's going on if you're curious. Is that okay? I'm not particularly curious unless a problem happens. Yeah. I I try to have a rainbow gathering unless there's an actual problem. Yeah. Now, they historically do create problems on the 3rd of July, but there's been an unprecedented amount of cooperation from the LEOs this year, and we were sort of hoping they wouldn't create an incident on the 3rd of July this year. Last year was the worst they'd ever created, but they've created some very bad incidents in the past. And I, we believe they use us for their training purposes to learn crowd control because we don't have weapons. We're not we're not a big protester march. We're just here having fun or doing our spiritual prayers. And they like to come in, and we call them the incident creation team. And the ICT is what they call themselves. We just say incident creation team instead of incident command team. And I think folks are pretty worried that they're going to try to create an incident, which is historically true of the last few years. Last year they opened fire on our children's village at dinner time on the 3rd of July, creating a lot of problems. Yes, it's difficult to stay calm and peaceful when someone is doing something agitating. Well, I was actually one of the people who got shot last year trying to protect the cops from the creation, the incident they created. And they were shooting their crowd control, and then they decided they wanted to arrest those of us who were trying to protect them. And they didn't do it then. They came later on trying to look for us, hunt us down, and it's very disturbing. I'm a medic. I'm an EMT, and I go to wherever there's a crisis, and whether it's hippie on hippie, whether it's cop on cop, or whether it's hippie and cop, or whatever it is, or whether it's a heart attack, that's where I go. That's, I'm like a white blood cell of the rainbow gathering. And so I was in between the cops and a very angry mass of people who had their children shot at. And the cops, the LEOs, decided they wanted to shoot us as well. <laughs> 
not a very intelligent decision to do because we were the only things between a full-out riot and there was only five of us, I think, five to seven of us stopping a full-out riot from happening and they were shooting at us as well. What techniques did you use to keep people calm? Well, there wasn't really any keeping calm because of what, you know, shooting into a children isn't really a great thing to do to keep anybody calm. But some of the, the de-escalation tactics of Shantasena, which are peacekeepers, which we all are at Rainbow Gatherings, but I'm one of the people who stay online to answer problem calls. Um, one thing that's important with most law enforcement officers is they have a very large bubble when they're scared. They have a bubble anyways when they're not scared, but they get scared easily from my experience and to keep people out of that bubble especially when they've drawn live weapons, which they ended up at the end of our time, they ended up drawing live weapons. And it's like, okay, keep the crowd as far back as possible. Try to keep any kind of stones or sticks that anybody might want to throw out of their frustration at having been shot at. The, the LEOs were actually aiming their lasers on people's foreheads, which was just, in, you know, creating more incensing. You know, the LEOs were escalating and it was really hard. It's hard to de-escalate when one or both sides continues to escalate. But the biggest thing we can do is just keep a big separation between the two parties, just like any fight. How do you stay the neutral party? What's going on inside of you, and how do you keep yourself calm? In the moment, I'm not sure how neutral I am. I'm just doing the job. Afterwards, I have a lot of feelings, especially after I got shot. And then we had a respiratory arrest case right afterwards um, that was directly related to the pepper spray that had been put out. And I was the lead medic on that for the first time. I'm not usually the lead on a life or death. And that was my first time being the lead medic, the only medic there on a life or death. And we were having to breathe for and we were doing, um, we didn't even have the bag valve mask yet. You know, we were, it's like, okay, get your face mask out. It was like all of this right after a six hour movie. I can't say I was neutral. In fact, the I was angry at the hippies and I was at the cops because I think we responded poorly to that situation. I think. The law enforcement officers often do this, and they often react poorly. I expect that of them. I expect us to act better. What do you expect people to do to act better? I would hope that we'd have enough presence of mind to keep our hearts and our, and our souls in with our anger, like, and to not act out of our anger, have our anger but not act out of it. And, you know, we, there's a way to do non-compliance without having to be angry or violent about it or screaming or threatening. And certainly without putting your dogs or your children in danger, and people were putting their dogs and children in danger, well, one child, not everyone. There was a lot of dogs. Like, I'm, I'm a civil disobedience activist, I've done a lot of civil disobedience in my past, and so I know how to be, how to stand up for what I believe in and choose to risk arrest. You don't take in non-consenting parties like someone too too young to consent or an animal that doesn't know what it's getting into. And so a lot of the hippies have their dogs following the cops up, and it's like the dogs could get shot. The you know the children. There was one person putting his child in danger. So when I came down, I was very very angry at the people who put other people in danger. What did you do with your anger? Oh, I think it got translated into PTSD actually. I came back this year with PTSD from that incident, from getting shot, and also from another incident where I had six officers rushing me when I was alone in the parking lot <laughs> with um, automatic weapons. And I've never had it personal before. I've done a lot of peacekeeping, a lot of medicking, and when I've risked arrest, I chose to risk arrest. I've never actually been alone while six officers with automatic weapons <laughs> were rushing me. So that combined with getting shot created a lot of nightmares and a lot of other things. And I was thinking, well, maybe I'm just not strong enough. It's not like I'm in Afghanistan, but I'm also not trained to have six people with automatic weapons charging me either. So, I mean, I'm still learning how to work with my anger and how not to act out of anger. I think normally I don't act out of anger under crisis, but it takes a heavy toll on me later. But it is a natural reaction of the human mind 
to protect itself. And I think one of the things about the human mind is that ideally, if we're not in post-traumatic stress disorder, we should also have other parts of us engaged as well, so we make good decisions even with our anger. Anger is a great fuel. It burns hot, but it burns fast and it burns you out. I learned this as an environmental activist and an indigenous rights activist. Anger is a, a very powerful fuel, but there's no way to keep going all your life on it. And I mean, we can do the same actions with different fuel. I'm really curious about forgiveness. All right, meet me, radio listener. I am so sorry that I... Uh, we're plugged in. We're going to do some CPCL, friends. I will claim my right to use these cubicles however long I have to pee and however much my bits and before I piss in the gents again I will piss your doorstep <laughs> That was a ranty. It was quite. That was quite reasonable, I think. <laughs> but then again, mm -hmm. I've stabbed tires and gone to jail for it. So <laughs> this is true. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mute myself. I don't know how I mute and unmute myself without even touching my computer. Um. Thanks so much, AJ. Uh, Hill, you're next. Hi, I just changed plans for a poem I was going to read like five times. So sorry if I'm not quite polished. Um, this first one is kind of dark. I have written on the notes warnings for corrective rape, suicide, alcoholism, and general homo and transphobia. Um, and I wasn't going to read it, but I guess now I am because I suddenly felt like it. Um, called Kind Advice. My cherished confidant has politely requested that I pack up my beautiful, vibrant, messy, ridiculous, difficult life and relocate it all to a closet. Then I hand over the rainbow mask, the t-shirt with pride flags emblazoned on D20s, the pink, blue, and white socks, and most of all, the pronoun pins, or rather, the pronouns themselves. That I learned to choke down girl, lady, woman, miss, ma'am, as if they were medicine with no spoonful of sugar in sight. That I learned to smile wider at the old men who walk behind me to stare at my ass, but politely inform them that I'm in a regular old heterosexual relationship, that I, in fact, get myself a regular old heterosexual monogamous relationship with some guy who may or may not be in the know, may or may not have any idea of the role that he is playing, and I say, how classic, how very retro. But what's really in my head is an image of my father kneeling on a carpet of cigarette butts loose change and the occasional cockroach, dressed only in zebra print underwear and desperately clutching a bottle of whiskey in his hand as he made me his confidant, confessed to me his sins because he no longer really believed the church had any particular line to God to offer him, but maybe a child's ears would suffice. I think of a woman who sheepishly pulled up the leg of her suit pants to show me that she'd shave. 
and whispered in wistful tones in a deep, deep voice about how if she were only younger, had only been born somewhere else, maybe she could live as herself instead of hiding these tiny rebellions from the world. I think of a million slashed wrists and mouthfuls of pills, of a phone call from a woman who desperately wanted me to say that both of her children left her, left us, left this world for some reason other than her inability to accept them as they were. I think of girls who kissed my lips feverishly by night, girls who also bullied me mercilessly by day, women who begged me to crawl into their beds while husbands were away and never understood why I was too good to be anyone's secret. I think of myself pushed back into the closet door, the sound of locks clicking of scraping furniture, of everything in the house being moved into place to keep me in my place. And I look at the pile of threats on my screen, the threats on the streets I walk, the memory of hands bruising my thighs as the words, I'll prove to you that you're a woman, resound off every wall. And I thank her for the kind advice, smile into the mirror at the job my roommate did shaving the sides of my hair, put on the Pride Geek shirt and walk into the sunlight. Because this beautiful, vibrant, messy, ridiculous, difficult life certainly won't fit into my closet anymore. Um, I'm going to read one more. Uh, it's called, I've never in my life written a poem. I have never in my life written a poem. I'm not any good at fiction, have thrown away dozens of half-written novels, broken down in the middle of hundreds of attempted lies, half-woven for as many purposes, good or ill. There are stories I can tell that you might not believe. They are too weird for anyone to accept as complete truth but they have always been proffered to the best of my meager ability to understand and remember and glean what is real. Perhaps it was when I drowned myself that I became some sort of waterlogged spirit, leaking and splashing strangeness upon every surface I passed, every page I held a pin to, every puff of air that could be convinced to carry my uncertain, brash, broken voice. I have never in my life turned in anything to any professor or editor that I could have claimed was the work of my mind, the amalgamation of lessons about the English language, rhyme, and meter, alliteration, or assonance. I may have once wanted to be a writer, but all that I can truly claim to be is someone who bleeds in syllables, red and clotting and painful into the space between beginning and end of my moment in the spotlight, on stage or screen, or perhaps just standing on the porch of a borrowed family. I speak these things to you by tongue or fingertip only because I am desperate to be heard. I've been screaming my entire life into a pillow, into the muffled, so muffled softness of propriety and respectability and protection of the status quo, into the steady murmur of a world determined to believe that victims must always have done something wrong, that sick people who don't get well must not be trying, that everyone born into a body must until the day of their death and beyond be chained by the glance of a doctor between their legs on that first day. I have never in my life written a poem. I am telling you, I only shed tears made up of vowel and consonant instead of salt water. Have only lost my ability to pull the plug and let everything swirl down the drain instead of overflowing. What you are hearing is always nothing more or less than the vomiting up of what would otherwise strangle. What is always on the verge of strangling, the still struggling drowning self. This unsteady, simple, artless voice is the only one that I have to offer. And yet I will dare to call it poetry if it gets anyone to listen. Okay, that's me. Thank you all. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, really oh, cool. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I love it. That's your pamphlet title, Someone Who Believes in Syllables. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. That's exactly what it should be. That's such a great title. Um, 
Yeah. Wow. I usually say something's a good band name. Now, you know, I'm like starting to get really fucking too much. <laughs> Too into the poetry community when I'm starting to think about pamphlet titles instead of band names or albums. <laughs> Those of you who, who uh, don't know pamphlet, that's chapbook in American. He knows that. <laughs> and Erin muted herself again. I, had, I haven't heard the word chapbook in so long. Oh, that's so weird. Oh. She's yeah. crossed over. I'm telling you, she's just crossed over. <laughs> <laughs> That's so weird. Okay, so next on our schedule tonight, we have Jeff Kalis coming in from San Francisco. Hi, Jeff. What's up? Hello, and hi to Pam, who I think is somewhere in these environs, in this wonderful peninsula Bay Area. Uh, I have a couple of shortish pieces here. Uh, have both of them having something to do with graduation and also to do with Father's Day, which is coming up this Sunday, because we all have fathers, and actually I am one. Uh, the first one is to my son. Uh, this was written recently uh, on a plane, in fact, on our way from San Francisco to Washington, D.C., where he graduated, called Itinerary. What can I see from where I am myself? Hope to sightsee what my life has moved to, towards where my other flesh and blood is heading. He ritualed and righted, capped and gowned, walking what I gave him, grown with what he's gathered, what unwinds from genetic code, played out in separate purpose, not knowing what or where or when, nor how long it can be held in common. So the love's a laugh for now at how we happened and what looks like, likes like, sounds like, as we share alike, we make our lives familiar. The next is for my daughter, Natalie. And this is in the form of a song. Uh, I couldn't find a proper instrument to play it on, so I'm going to sing it <clears throat> a cappella or try to. It's called My Pretty Pot. Pride, my pretty pride. My pretty pride, I dropped you off at school, but stayed there for a while to watch your joy. I loved your love and how you shared it with each kindergarten kid, each girl and boy, you learned a lot of big and little worlds, of pachyderms and pearls, and books and math. And as you grew, you taught your dad so much of what to say and touch along our paths. 
We sang old songs in harmony. We righted wrongs to keep us free. And now you're here, about to start your life and someday be a wife by someone's side. In cap and gown, you've taken us so far. Remember who you are, my pretty pride. Thank you all for listening. Um, sweet. Thanks so much, Jeff. It sounds like it was a great trip to uh, DC. Um, yeah. It it was nice and warm, and and everybody was celebrating. I felt like I was in heaven, actually. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> My God. Um. So our next reader is John, the mar the miraculous and mar marvelous John Wessick. <laughs> Thanks. I have two for you today. Um, the first is called Wildcat. What was the Cyclops name in the Odyssey? I pulled out my dog-eared paperback of Homer to find the answer, but all its pages were blank. Odd. I checked Shakespeare's complete works and found the same thing. I rifled the dusty press board bookshelves that sagged under the weight of my fiction collection. The words had walked off the job in Chekhov, Hemingway, Richard Yates, Raymond Carver, and dozens of others. After dropping the blank volumes on the carpet, I checked the rest. Dictionaries and textbooks were untouched, as were Borges and Italo Calvino. Only one book on quantum mechanics remained on my Kindle. Puzzled by this mystery, I drove to the library and found a picket line blocking the interest. Dressed in toga and crown, Oedipus shook his fist at the cowering librarians and shouted, does my love life amuse you, perverts? Esther Prynne carried a placard with an A and a red circle with a line through it. James Bond shouted, I hate martinis. What's this all about? I asked Scout Finch. Fiction readers get their rocks off by watching us suffer. We've had enough and demand sick leave, a $15 minimum wage, and that authors follow OSHA workplace safety rules. I sat on the steps in the shade of a stone lion to contemplate what she'd said. Why did readers enjoy the suffering of others? Must fiction rely on thwarting characters' wants? How could one write a literature of love mutual respect and solidarity instead. What if Juno's parents had put her on the birth control pill? What if Humbert Humbert and Tom Ripley had gotten the therapy they needed? What if Joseph K. could afford a better lawyer? Would deciphering an alien language without some rogue general threatening intercellular genocide still interest a reader? Before I had time to answer these questions, 
Robert McKee led a squad of helmeted riding students carrying truncheons and riot shields into the square. This is an illegal assembly, he shouted through the megaphone. You have five minutes to disperse. The strikers shook their fists and cursed. McKee gave the order and the riot squad attacked in a stunning example of conflict in fiction. A rubber bullet shattered Oedipus's eyes while readers stayed up past their bedtimes to witness pepper spray disable Hester Prynne and zip ties bind Jay Gatsby's wrists. Writers clubbed Emma Bovary to her knees, kicked her ribs with steel-toed boots, and tossed her bleeding body between a hardcover's pages. The scene shot to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. In her review, Michiko Kakutani praised the riot as a triumphant return to form. <laughs> Um, so, uh, this next one is a rant about one of those other poetry readings, and uh, it's called, Do I Have Time to Read One More? <laughs> no! Mastodon still roamed the earth when tonight's poetry reading began, but you wouldn't know that, would you? You arrived 10 minutes ago and cut in front of the 15 readers who are still waiting. Two passed into menopause and one developed an enlarged prostate during the feature. You told the MC you had to run off to your daughter's wedding, which will happen next to your grandfather's simultaneous funeral across from the baseball field hosting your son's little league playoff. If you're in such a rush, how did you find the time to read a seven poems, your head down, staring at the papers so you didn't see the next reader on the open mic die from old age? Honestly, it feels more like you read 17 due to your long-winded introductions. Much as it matters to you, the audience doesn't care about how the rhubarb marmalade you spread on your gluten-free toast inspired your poem. Each member has shown you more patience than that of the love child who would have resulted if Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and Jesus had a three-way. For God's sakes, have some consideration. Some of us would like to visit our grandchildren before they become parents, walk among the pines before the sun swells to a ball of radioactive flame that engulfs the earth. Bravo. <laughs> oh my God, that was so wild. <laughs> that was really wild. Thanks, John. I needed that laugh. Uh, but just, I, I'm probably just the only person who feels that. <laughs> That was just a laugh riot, man. That was so funny. Holy shit. <laughs> Don't hold back, John. Don't hold back. <laughs> <laughs> See why I said marvelous and miraculous? <laughs> Is that your closer, babe? That's my closer. Right on. Thanks, Mic drop. <laughs> Oh my God. Uh, 
Oh, wait, I'm asking to unmute and I don't. Okay, so I guess, I mean, like, because we're missing. Oh, Leslie, would you like to go next? Yeah, I wasn't looking at the chat. I was too busy laughing. Well, of course, yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. So I've just got two. I think they're, they're um, pretty short. <clears throat> Apologize if anyone's heard any either of these. This one's called Blackface Dogs. In the space of an hour and a half, I see six black-faced dogs walking, trotting, stopping, sniffing. They come together on the sidewalk. I stop to look. I'm not sure what this means. Maybe nothing, but there is a chance that this can be read as a sign. A sign with deep significance, deep as space, deep as dreams, deep as love, deep as an underground stream that moves us without our knowing. Perhaps this that I read as a sign has no meaning whatsoever and is simply random. It is only what my mind decides to do, to take it up, to continue some thread, some chain that may have begun before we were born and will continue after our death. This chain of set signs and symbols that has no words or coherent thoughts, but that which we all understand or we think we do. It could be that the meaning only happens when there is an observer. We have been told this. Or I could decide to let it go, let go of any attachment to meaning and observe the cluster of dogs with their black faces as simply as I would the ripple in the clear pool. This ripple, the movement of the day to day, the day and every day that is the keeper of our days on earth. It is a decision, my decision, to take it up, take it on the thirst, the quest for what is called meaning, or to let it go. Let the dogs be dogs and be with a deeper knowing that is union. We are the cameras looking out from our eyes, omnipotent, all-seeing, or if we decide, we are all as one, the actors together on the stage observing and being observed, and we decide at any moment which we are. I am satisfied today, now, that like the dowser always searching for the deep water beneath the surface, I will surely know at the moment, I see the dogs, any dogs, every dog, just dog. The moment I see the birds, I see the horses, or hear the trees whisper, whether to be simply or humbly with these ripples, these rhythms of my life on earth, or take it on, take it into me, the weight of meaning, shoulder the weight, the weight of significance, the weight of the world that also lives in me. Today, I see black, the black-faced dogs. Today, I simply watch them and smile, let them go sniffing and wagging on their way. So that's that. So this one, um, this is sort of an odd one. It's, it's sort of in response to some things that happened. So it's sort of in two parts. It's called the bridge, this bridge our back. Under the cover of darkness, through the transmission of light, we come into existence in being we love. It's not the world of our parents, not the world we knew. It is not the world of the ancient ones, nor the world as it was. It is a world which we changed over and over again for our self-interest, from our curiosity, our wonder, our, our awe, trying to understand in pieces bit by bit how the whole worked, and bit by bit we tinkered, analyzed, took it apart, examining the little pieces that make up the whole, and we separated pieces from the whole, the what was. We take it apart, 
reassemble like toys, the tightly knit weave of life that was, the pieces missing, changed, never to be put back together as the all in everything that was. We let in the light to see better, to understand, not understanding the many dark recesses meant to remain in shadow, hidden, to be not revealed, but as the deep source, the protected well of origin that we muddied with the heavy, deliberate intent of knowledge that we lay claim to as if God, God we are not, and we altered that which only could be known, only could remain and thrive as entity, as whole, and the it is, this torn asunder, nature altered, altered nature that is now altering us. Under the pressure of love, we span the cosmos. Under the moonlit sky, we traverse this night sky, dark or moonlit, the evening star above to light the way, our body, the blanket of clouds, protective, we watch and on earth, down into the earth, the pylons of us, feet planted, the splayed stance, our strength, the back, strong and upright, holding forth, holding up, rooted and strong, we support this span, that which coming up from the depth of earth, all that travels across us, we hold up all that walks, each that walks this path, each foot to fall where it may, crossing through these veils, the network of sheer light which travels, the threads of energy, they pulsate and hum, the nets below to catch whosoever or what falls, the threads, webs of energy, through these veils, the mists that shroud the hidden, the pockets, the valleys of ancient realms. And across this reach, that which spans each crevice, each furrow, the gaping gulf of what lies below, we the collective of those, us the bridge, spanning the distances, traversing difference, calling to, awaiting all travelers, you, to cross the us, the we, which are awaiting you to travel across this bridge, our backs. That's it for me. What, where's, where's the riff from that? What is it that, what was that book? Was it, was it Robin Morgan? Who was it? The what book? Was it Audre Lorde, this bridge called my it back? Was an anthology of um, this bridge called my back. It was edited by, um, I can't remember who it was edited by, but it was like a whole, a whole anthology of, of, of people. I yeah, like a feminist. Was it theory or was it poetry? Um, it was. Um, I, I, I looked it up actually while we were talking. Um, oh, wow. It's uh, yeah. an anthology of writing by radical women of color. So, um, yeah, exactly. Like combined various things. Thank you so much because um, in, innocently, um, I had not read that how I came to this title is that um, for many years, I was an art critic in Columbus, Ohio. I was also teaching at Ohio State University. And I was really good pals, having written about a lot of the amazing um, black women artists of the time. Um, I was pals with a lot of them. And um, one of them curated the show called This Bridge Our Backs. 
And it, it's through visual art that I come to the title. And from knowing these amazing um, women artists, strong as hell, you know, <laughs> just like, yeah, I, I could see all of them as, you know, this bridge are back. So um, one of like the required readings back in like the second or the third wave feminism in the early 90s. Yeah. It's edited yeah. by Sri Moraga, who was a really great sort of mestiza poet. Um, so, which is oh. right up the alley, being from Santa Fe. Yeah. 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 If you could put, maybe if you could just put some of this in the chat so I oh, can write it. Of course I will. Of course I will. Because, like I said, innocently, I was so, I, I, you know, I was a single parent of three kids. I worked like, you know, juggling five jobs. I taught. I, I mean, I didn't have time to read. So, where I got my information was from, you know, your work my work listening to people and, and and all that so i would so appreciate knowing the origin of that oh i've got it i've got it thank you so much audrey lord was in it um and the kumbahi river collector who i think were the people who in came up with the term intersectionality um oh. is it in the chat now that's that's a cool term too. Thank you guys. Love the sharing of the information. Um, so our next reader. Thank you so much, Leslie. Oh. Um, hi, Pam. Our next reader is the inimitable Carolyn. Don't tell me you're imitable. That would be that's like a ridiculous <laughs> assertion. Okay then. <laughs> um, okay, I'm I'm gonna share a couple of bits. Um, I'm still obsessed about cows, so I'm gonna share a couple of little bits. Um, I don't know; they're, they're very much works in progress, but um, I'm just gonna read them anyway. Um, maybe two or three, depending. There might be some overlap because they're kind of a bit rough at the minute. Um, just let me get my screen. Oh, do you okay. need to be made co-host, darling? Sorry. You need to be made co-host. No, 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 no. I'm just going to read. Oh, okay. Um, so uh, I'm still going with waking. This is called In My Waking Dream Part 3. Holy cow. You wonder now if the cow in the jaw of the JCB digger was a fistulated cow. That if as well as being annually, manually fistfucked by the farmer, it had also been fistulated. A hole drilled into the side of it, allowing the farmer or curious child to plunge at their leisure, reach in and pull out the contents of their stomach. Why does the cow not kick? Why does the cow not run? Stupid cow, lazy cow, depressed cow, defeated cow. Cow is commodity, cow is object, cow is product. And in your waking dream, you chance upon a fistulated cow wandering along the pet food aisle head low and heavy, udders masticated and covered in slurry. You wonder why a cow can't raise their head like a horse can, but still you can't resist. Pull the plug and plunge your hand in the hole. Tell me, what does it feel like to have your right elbow deep, your right arm elbow deep in the orifice of a cow? Squelchy, I imagine, sinewy too. Is this your first time? What if the porthole grew teeth and bit off your arm, bit off all the farmer's arm, bit off all the kitty's arms, or what if it just got stuck? 
if the laws of gravity and nature conspired against you? What if like a vacuum, it pulled your arm in and the only way to separate you would be to amputate your arm? But maybe that's how the stupid cow likes it. Um, and then I'm going to read another one called um, Entry Point. To enter or to be entered into. She will not open up on demand alone. You stand behind her and rub her back. Her pale pink skin craves mud to keep her cool. Her snout desires grass and insects, encased in the bites them on the metal bar. You make the incision at the dotted line, reach in under her left nipple and insert the saline bag as she has requested. To invade or be invaded by. You leave your mother's womb she pops you out with all your other siblings. You land on metal, your conception sexless, the semen delivered through a plastic tube. Your mother's back scratched and rubbed by a man who could not look her in the eye. And there are flies everywhere. House flies, fruit flies, sewer flies and blow flies sticking to the flypaper, being zapped in the blue light. Pigs, concrete, metal, shit. Tiny piglets, pink and grey and brown. There are no other colours here. The occasional red. On the floor... The tips of curly tails clipped. Pigs are pink because you made them that way. Pinks are pig because we made them that way. And, and last one, last one, okay. Um, a walk down the aisle. Cow walks down the dairy aisle and into the next lane. Calf, that is you, follows. Moo, says the child. Moo, says the cow. Poor cow. Melancholy cow. Lost cow. Helpless cow. Abused cow. Subordinate cow. There's shit on her udders, shit on her feet. But I'm not a cow. I don't shit in the dairy aisle. I don't chew the cud. Don't call me a fat cow. Don't call me a stupid cow. Fuck you. Fuck that shit. Your mother is squatting now and holding onto the same metal bar that her child once more bites into. She's in pain and there's a pool of water at her feet. Cow knows. Cow knows this pain. Cow knows this cry. The baby drops onto hard concrete. The baby calf drops onto concrete. concrete. Moo, says your mother. Moo, says Her long licky tongue licks away the fetal matter. It is warm. You are loved. You're fat. Lazy, melancholy cow mum loves you, but your life is not for any of that. Your precious life is not for any of that. We need to get you fat. We need to get you fat, stupid old cow, enough of that. Where is the farmer who will feed you fat? 60 minutes up, baby calf clean. Goodbye, cow. Moo. And the dinner below now. That's it. <laughs> That's it. I, mean, I, know, I know, I know, I know. I just had to like get like, you know how bad I am with muting and unmuting myself. <laughs> um, okay. So yeah, thank you so much for going, Caroline. I'm so like, what's, I, I don't, well, we'll talk about it during the break, but I don't want to like, I want to talk about the, the whole cow. Late, it's not even a late motif. It's a, a legit motif. Um, so before we go on break, um, I'm going to do some stuff. Uh, I'm not sure 
if it's it might be new stuff for some people it's new shit like some of it's new sh two of it's new shit one of it is shit that just got published in gutter magazine which about which i'm like woo! i got published in gutter magazine which like if you don't know is like sort of like the hip place to um be published in glasgow's like lit scene so anyways i'm gonna read that one since since i was like and I, and i got paid so I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I called my mom and I was like, because I found out at like 3 a.m. from somebody else. They were like, congratulations. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Um, so, yeah, so I'll read that one first. And then I have more from the rock opera. And there's a little it's a little bit of a story. Um, some of the people who are at the fringe have heard one of them um, already. So I apologize for that. But it, they do make sort of a bit of a pair. So, anyway, okay, so here is the first one that was published. Um, I don't know when the magazine's coming out. I have to give them my proof on tomorrow. So it's called Severe Weather Warning. There's a storm of stars gathering. I watched it last night laying wasted on the grass in the park. How do tiny holes in the sky cause such bruising? The stars congregate under cover of the morning sun, which reveals fever, and the bags under my eyes tell of hangings. Poor women who have been murdered, they're still there in the park. They wonder at the curious glances of passers-by, side-eyes at their swinging, and ecstatic trances are seen as accusations. These women I know, and they know, that desire more than venom was responsible. My phone just ran out of batteries and that sucks because it's plugged in and it shouldn't that shouldn't have happened. It's it's literally plugged into the thingy to the plug. I'm sorry poetry people. I'm sorry today. I've got all kinds of problems today. Uh, the station, the stream is weird. And the stream is super hot. The, my phone ran out of batteries for no reason. Whatevs. Um, let me try to plug it into some a different one that might that might work. Hey, I'm really sorry, CPCL. I showed up late and dumped out early. I'm a jerk. Um, I can't imagine why this isn't doing its thing though. Charging. All right, well, I'll read my poems, and then, uh, and then we'll do something else completely. Okay. Um, and again, I'm really sorry, everybody, from, from CPCL. Sorry about that, that, I, that I'm having tough technical difficulties today. Today's a weird day for me. Like, there's been a ghost in the machine, and, um, and that's, that's for sure. Okay, I'll read my poems. And again, big apologies to Andy and uh, Aaron for CPCL today and me being kind of not with it. All right, uh, this first poem, it's called Lone Wolf, and this is all new stuff for me. Lone Wolf, what a cliche. Don't cry. Cliche doesn't exist without years of thoughts and voices proclaiming. Let the cat out of the bag. Why would you ever have a cat in a bag, you soulless monster? Unless you are a wolf who eats cats, then by all means, keep them in bags. 
Assholes abound and sidewalk politics are murdering cats and dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. The pigs are ribs now on the grill of their houses burnt or blown down. The lone wolf is always hungry and bricks make an excellent oven. Children are the masters of language, the only ones who live honesty, especially when they lie. Okay. Here's my other new one, and it's called Pearls. Pearls. Where are you now, my blue-eyed sailor? Let me start again. I put two words together at the same time. Pearls. Where are you now, my blue-eyed sailor? My savior come to sweep me to the sea. A forever floating. This bed of sea and kelp I float. Eyes closed or open, you're still invisible. I can't see your orange shorts or that you're not wearing a helmet. I am a coward in my shell. Shoot me into sound, this thought pearl. Pictures make sounds and thoughts on the screen of your eyes. I am a desktop. I am a dormouse, a writing desk. What is a rat? Who spins? Where are you now, Lewis, my favorite understander of children? Except you're gross. I mean, we all love a blonde girl in an apron. Thanks, Disney. With the rhymes and the words of new, your vorpal sword and tweedle walrus, a carpenter isn't always Jesus, and sometimes an oyster is just an oyster. All right. Well, that's my new poem. I'm pretty happy with it. Um, Again, really sorry that my phone ran out of batteries. I don't know what's happening with this charger at the station right now. It's Mercury's in retrograde, so everything technological is falling apart, including Mutiny Radio. Just kidding. We're not falling apart. I mean, kind of, but not really. Um, I have to figure. I'm going to sit here and try to figure this stuff out. Um, We'll see if Latoya, the Sheriff of Truth, gives us a call. And yeah. Okay, let's bring up some... I mean... God, shall we just make this about me? Uh, there was a interview with me, uh, Story to SF. So let's get that going. .fm in .sf, coming at you from 278 121st Street and Florida Street. We don't have AquaQ tonight. We're going to be having an interview with Storied SF. Jeff's going to be here. We're going to take some pictures, and we're going to have a little interview. I'm very excited. We're double dipping on a podcast, two podcasts, recording at one time with Storied SF, so coming up in the next hour. Then at 6 o'clock, we have Joke Workshop here every Monday at 6 o'clock. 18 comedians, the first eight, all get four-minute sets and four minutes of comments by their comic peers. And then it's just an open mic with four minutes after that. But everybody's really nice and pays attention, and that is Joke Workshop at 6 o'clock every Monday. You can sign up, just friend Facebook, like us on Mutiny Radio, Facebook, like our Instagram, Mutiny Radio SF. Give us money on our Venmo at Mutiny Radio. 
That would be great. <laughs> and uh, listen to some more music. This is an old morning train by J.D. Buell. He's no longer with us on this mortal coil, but we still get to listen to his musical choices, his DJ wonderment. Miss him very much. And uh, that's the morning train with J.D. Buell. Oh, no, I've said too much. Or maybe I haven't said enough.
what a party that was at the county jail. The Jeff Beck group from the album Beckola, on which they performed two Elvis Presley songs. We heard Jailhouse Rock. They also do All Shook Up on there. Ron Wood on bass, Nicky Hopkins piano, Tony Newman drums. Jeff Beck on guitar, of course, and vocals extraordinaire, Rod Stewart. Also on some extraordinary vocals, Eric Burden, 1966, with the debut of the group known as Eric Burden and the Animals, on British radio, doing Heartbreak Hotel. Let's go down to Texas now and hear Rosemarie from 1966. Listening to Mutiny Radio.fm in .sf, and I am here right now with Storied SF and Jeff. Yeah. Jeff, Jeff of Storied SF. Hi. Am I on here? You are I'm on. I'm not hearing myself. Yeah. You have to be a, pretty close to the mic. Oh, okay. There, there you are. go. Yeah. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Hi, and Pam. you can always turn your volume up a little bit more if you okay. like. Okay. And hi. Thanks so much for being here on Mutiny Radio. I'm super excited. Storied SF, another podcast, local podcast. Yes. Doing stories about. I'm like, I'm interesting enough to do a story about, yay! Oh, yes, you are, absolutely. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you for having us. Um, this is also a little bit different than what we normally do. We're not always in the studio. Like, we bring the studio to wherever it is. Um, should I introduce our project? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so um, when I say our, um, the Story San Francisco is Michelle Kilfeather sitting here to my left and myself, I'm Jeff Hunt, and uh, I I guess I'm like the the audio person and she's the visual. We're an audio visual. Um, she does photographs. I do the podcast part. So um, we started about four years ago, and our sort of impetus or the inspiration to to do this was that you know we have both been here at this point. 
20 plus years. Um, but we found ourselves four years ago or so complaining, doing that thing that we all do, like drinking ourselves to death and be like, fuck this city and what's happening. But no, it's like, no, but we also love this place and want to turn that into something positive where we celebrate the people who are still here still, and yeah. still doing good stuff. R.I.P. Hemlock. R.I.P. I mean, do, do you want to just do an hour of R.I.P.? Yeah, we can do that, right? <laughs> like every every small art gallery, every small business in San Francisco right now, all the cool things. It was like, where'd they go? Yeah. All the empty storefronts. It's scary. And then Lauren. everyone moved here because they were like, it's so cool. But then all the artists have to move because they can't afford it. It's like, oh, what do we do? Yeah. And like La Rondaya became a salad joint. Like, is that <laughs> is there anything more telling than that? Salad lounge. Yeah. Um, <laughs> What does that even mean? But no, it's you know, uh, I I think it's it's like it, it, it it's specific to what to what we do, but it's also I think a, a a general way to live life is like, are you gonna turn the negative into something positive and try to learn from it? And I, I mean, I have to say, like like going back even pre pandemic, <laughs> the joy of this project that we're doing because we're a weekly podcast, we're doing forty nine episodes a year, so we're just constantly out there meeting and getting the life stories and really getting to know and share the stories of amazing people um, through the through the pandemic though I mean that's it's like that's t taken up a notch because everyone is trapped inside right. and not being social and not maybe not meeting new people although for so. creativity I think for artists it's been a boon because how right. many songwriters wrote a whole new album how right. many people I think Taylor Swift novel. did like five right, right? so <laughs> yeah. people have been super creative artists right. had time to paint people had time to write I think a lot of people just watched a lot of Netflix but right. there have been people creating projects because they had the time to finally do it right which is exciting and no lack of uh, uh, inspiration right um, <laughs> So the world's falling apart. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that's, I guess that's what we do. We have a different theme every season for each 49 episodes. And, and this season we're about, um, I think 13, a dozen or so episodes in our theme this season is we're still here. <laughs> uh, we did launch in this year. Um, so speaking to a lot of things, but the exodus or Texodus as I've, I've heard it referred to is like, no, uh, a lot of people did leave by choice. A lot of people were forced to leave, unfortunately. Um, but we're still here. There's still, still a here. city. And and I think um, for Michelle and myself, it's like there's a – and a lot of folks out there, I believe. Um, there's a chance to to make a better city moving forward. Right? Yeah. Because if we're building – once things are broken, we can rebuild. Yeah. So now's the time. Yeah. I just was surprised that the questionably housed stayed like the same. Yeah. I, I live in the Tenderloin, so yeah. pretty much nothing changed. Right. And I thought like with all of the people moving out, couldn't we have found homes for the 10,000 questionably housed people? And no, that didn't – nothing – that didn't change. And with literally <laughs> the biggest building or was for a minute on the West Coast, like that's just now empty. Right. <laughs> right. Like, and I guess it has art on the top. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Definitely not not ignoring like all the problems that are still here um, yeah. and all the people who are suffering uh, at all. Um, but I think that's perhaps you know I'm not pretending I have any of the answers that Michelle right. has any of the answers or any one person has the answers. But there's a chance to build a better city, um, a more equitable city, a fair city, a loving, respectful. I mean, look around. Like I, the one thing I feel like almost everyone who we've had on the show. 
and we ask, you know, like, what is it that drew you to San Francisco if you weren't, if you aren't from here originally? It's like, it's just beautiful. And That's it's true. got, it's got this history of magic. And it's like, yeah. Yeah. Poetry, everything, that whole. So what brought me to San Francisco eventually I mean, as a child, I used to come in on the weekends and stuff, and it was very exciting. And my dad used to work in the city at the newspaper agency, which was the Chronicle Examiner, and, and so he was right there on Fifth Street. Mm -hmm. And I'd come in as a kid, and I just thought it was so exciting. Yeah. Uh, but then as an adult, I got into graduate school, finally. So I came here 13 years ago to go to San Francisco State and yes. get some master's degrees. Common thread on our show. Right. There's a lot of... It all goes back to SF State. I love it. I went there too. Oh, yeah. well, and I loved, so that was the thing about SF State. I wanted to get a master's in writing, but I didn't want to just, I lived in San Diego at the time and okay. I wanted to go to the best school that I could in California and it's for writing. It's San Francisco State. So right. I came up here, got a couple master's degrees and I was, I was never going to leave. Right. Yeah. And then I started comedy and then, and I, right when I moved here, I started doing radio when it was Pirate Cat here mm -hmm, in this mm -hmm. building now, which is Mutiny. So I've been with this particular building since 2008. So, I mean, I love, I never want to leave San Francisco. I love it so much. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, what can I do to stay? I love it here forever. Do you ever have that feeling? You're like, I might be the last one. <laughs> <laughs> that still loves it? No, I think there's, well, it's exciting. No, that the last one left. <laughs> oh, right. Well, I always knew I'd thrive in the apocalypse. I kind of feel yeah. like, I am legend. I will stay here. I will, I will the, eat pigeons. The world <laughs> caught up with fun. you. <laughs> well, I, I always thought I wanted to call it, you know, the pandemic. I was like, this is oh, great. Yeah. I'm, I've always, I've been kind of waiting for the, the pandemic to happen. Yeah. And it, it was fine. It was, yeah. I mean, I was always poor. So everyone else came down to my level. I was like, yeah. <laughs> now we're all in the same, same place. But I grew up, um, I was born in Livermore. So I'm a Livermore on um, 1974, quite some time ago. And um, I've never lived outside of California. Okay. And I... I just don't know. I lived, you know, I lived in San Diego for a while. I lived in Davis for a while, but I came back to the Bay Area because I love it here. Even yeah. my family disappeared. I just now, like, oh. this is my, not like disappeared. They just moved, you know, like they left the Bay Area. And yeah. So they went far flung. But I'm never, I'm never leaving. So in sense of your family, you are the last one. I'm the last here. one, yeah. Sure. Um, okay, yeah. Can, can we make this about you now? Sure. <laughs> okay, yeah. That's that's what I we do. I hate talking about myself. I never yeah. do that on stage. But you are no. the the subject matter expert of your life story. That's, Am that's I right? true. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. Yeah. Do you know how your parents ended up around here, or like? Yeah. Um. They both worked in the city, and they had moved here. Uh, my father grew up in Redwood City. And my mother grew up in Illinois, and okay. then she moved to San Francisco to work. And I guess she met my father in a in an elevator on Leavenworth Street. I'm like, okay. like in a in an apartment building. Right. We were going. He was going to someone's house, and she was in. The, she had her apartment there, and it was on like Leavenworth and Post or something. And they met in the elevator. I guess. Love and, in an elevator. Yeah, love in an elevator in like 1960-something, nine or whatever. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting time to come to San Francisco for work. Right. Am I right? Like, yeah. Not I mean, a lot of people's reasons to come here then. But they were not hippies in, right. by any stretch of the Sounds imagination. Like they were. They were <laughs> no, they are not at all. They were like, I don't know what I don't know what they were, but they're definitely, they're very Republican now. So I don't know yeah. what they were then, but they're okay. not, they definitely are not hippies, not call me pinko liberals like me. Right. But they met here and then decided to get married and moved to the East Bay and can we know, say bought where? a house. Yeah. Um, so I guess first they lived in Pleasanton and then they lived in 
then they m- moved to Danville. I grew up in Danville. Okay. Oh my God, soul sucking wasteland of Lexuses. Yes. But I know it was like poor little rich girl. I was so I was raised in Danville, which is a terribly wealthy place, mm-hmm. and. But everyone else was so much richer than me that I thought we were poor. Right. So I didn't understand. I just didn't understand <laughs> that everyone was rich. And I was like, oh, I only got a Hyundai for my birthday. <laughs> I didn't get a BMW or a Mustang like everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I got a new car. What am I complaining about? Was it racially diverse? <laughs> we, had, we had four. Okay, so we had four African-American students in my class. One of them was Randy Wynn, who went on oh, to yeah. play for the Mariners and then the, and then the Giants. The Giants. And is on, uh, he's a commentator he's for a the commentator Giants. He's a commentator now, yeah. And so he was actually, he graduated the same year I did. And I, it's funny story. So I was a cheerleader and he played basketball all the time. And I had very tall. He was very tall. I had a very big crush on him. And so I'm coming off of El Cerro. I'm in a car with my mother. I'm like 16 years old. And I say to her, I have kind of have a crush on Randy Wynn. And she's like, the first thing out of her mouth is, don't you ever marry a black man. Oh, mom. <laughs> oh, mom. So oh, what did I do? No. And when I was 25, I got married to a black, a black guy. So I was married for, I was with, um, he was like my college sweetheart. We were we were together for 13 years, married for seven. Awesome. So I used to be like um, a bourgeois corporateer back in the day. Okay. And um, you said cheerleader. Can we I talk was. A, can yes. we talk other, about uh, more stuff about growing sure, up? Sure. Yeah. So I was a cheerleader. Like because, high school level. High school or? cheerleader. Yeah, oh, I was shit. a varsity cheer. And the only reason I did it is it was reverse stalking because I liked. So I liked Todd Benatar, and he was incidentally the nephew of Pat Benatar. I was just gonna say that name. Yeah, what? Yeah. And so, he's in and the family. She lived in Blackhawk, and so his family lived there, or whatever. So I had a huge crush on Todd Benatar, and I was like. <gasps> I can reverse stalk. If I'm there first, it's not stalking. So if I'm a cheerleader, I'm around them all the time, and this will be great. Like, I'll meet all the boys, and all the boys will like me, and it'll be so fun. And then every Friday after the games, like basketball is Tuesday, Thursday, but um, Fridays were football games. And after the games, I'd be, like, standing around with the rest of the cheerleaders, and I'd be like, where's the party? Where's the party? And they'd be like, oh, there's no party. And then on Monday, everybody would be talking about the party. Oh, man. I'm a cheerleader. I'm supposed to be popular now. happening with my life so it was but nobody likes to know it all and nobody's like invite me to the party invite me to the party so yeah. that was that was like my that was my youth i love that that was your motivation for cheerleading yeah of course um short I, skirts yeah yeah hey it's Hitting warmer over there than yeah. it is in <laughs> yeah. the city but in, right? the, in the winter time we wore our little skirts we had to wear our little outfits to school on the day of the game right and we i still fit in my cheerleading outfits by the way i love to wear them any excuse to wear them i'm like ha ha, ha i still fit in that <laughs> but tiny little skirts and it was winter time it was cold and we just had to go and they'd say oh don't wear nylons make sure that your legs are bare? just bare and oh i was like why dude. are we doing this so it was yeah maybe because danville maybe because bit. danville or america danville's a little more like america than well, and this right? was the early 90s so like yeah. You know, misogyny didn't exist, and girls walk. I mean, it was just like <laughs> invitation to ob- objectify me, yeah. which uh, uh, never, but that was what I was kind of looking for. I was like, I want these guys to objectify me, but right. they were just playing basketball. They weren't actually interested in the cheerleaders, right. so that was that was fun. Are you quick side note? Are you gonna help us get Randy Wynn on the show? <laughs> He'll remember me. He'll remember me from high school. Absolutely, I have no uh, doubt in my mind. That'd be a trip. My fiance would. Free out. <laughs> she, she used to work for the Giants. Grew up a Giants fan, so, and she loves Randy Wynn. Yeah, he's uh, he looks pretty much exactly the same. He does. He looks like he's twenty two or something. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, yeah. I like him too, yeah, for the record. I, yeah. Um, but yeah, I was. I still so. 
one of I cheer I used to love cheerleading and they want they went to the Arco Arena twice our basketball team was really good they like won the division one that finals. was in Sacramento right yeah Arco yeah, okay. Arena okay and so I got to cheer in Arco Arena which was really exciting but yeah. then one of my favorite favorite stories is when I got to cheer in Arco Arena as an adult and it was 1997 and I won tickets to a Smashing Pumpkins concert. I won tickets to the front row at Arco Arena. No and I was so excited. I was freaking out and I was so excited because I just won them walking around. I'd heard about the quad spies, quad spies. Anyways, so I win the <laughs> tickets and I'm losing my mind. And I get down to the front and garbage was opening, which I love. I love yes. Garbage. And it was Smashing Pumpkins. And I love the Smashing That's Pumpkins. That's a great bill. And so I know, right? So I'm down in the front row and my now ex-husband, he's there and I'm like, I'm so excited. And we had seen the Cow Palace show and it was terrible. They had to end early because people were moshing and it was terrible and they were upset. So we bought tickets. Anyways, so we're there and I'm on one side and he's on the other. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to make this side yell smashing and you're going to make this side yell pumpkins. He's yes. like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I was like, we're doing this. You get over there and we're doing this. So I get up in front and I'm like, the smashing puppies were in San Francisco and it sucked. And we're going to bring them out and make them so happy. This side's going to yell smashing. That side's going to yell pumpkins. So it Literally. starts with the people in the front. Smashing pumpkins, smashing pumpkins. I made a sold out Arco Arena. I'm not even fucking with you. Yes. The entire Arco Arena is screaming smashing pumpkins, smashing pumpkins. Smashing pumpkins come out. Billy Corgan's like, we've never been brought on stage like this. <laughs> You're going to have the best show we've ever had. Hell and yeah. they just go. And I was like, I did that. I did that. You literally led the cheer. I did. In a huge auditorium. A, yeah, that's sold awesome. out. I was so happy. I was like, this is my cheerleading. This is what my whole life was training <laughs> it for. Led up to that. That's freaking yeah, awesome. So that's like a childhood story. But that's from the 90s. I'm so old now that even the stories in the 90s are childhood stories. That's okay. So, we're, okay. we're old too. Um, <laughs> okay. And, and the, the last four years <laughs> aged all of us. Um, but did you, so did you have siblings? Do you I, have siblings? I do. I have an older brother, but he's also. Um, extremely republican, republican okay. and very religious yeah uh and my my upbringing was very very jesus centric okay so i was super 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 religious it kind of checked like, all the very, boxes it sounds like yes. the white white rich republican and christian right yeah and like oh it was singing for the choir and the whole thing like okay just being really involved in church and yeah you know, I didn't drink or smoke or do anything fun till college, like yeah. all that kind of stuff. I was really clandestine. And no wonder no one wanted to invite me to the parties because there's like, no one wants to bring the stick in the mud. They're like, well, she doesn't have any fun. I'm like, I do. Let's sing songs to God. Come on. <laughs> um, no, I'm kidding. I would never, I would never do that at a party. I would probably be scared and hang in the back and be like, everyone's so cool. Yeah. Uh, but no, I grew up with Jesus. And it was weird because when I was little, I've always had a very vivid imagination. So, of course, Christianity was perfect for me. <laughs> but I wanted to have an invisible cat friend when I was like seven or eight, like mm -hmm. a four foot tall, fluffy, invisible cat friend. Mm -hmm. And my parents were like, no, you cannot have an invisible cat friend, but you can be best friends with a 33 year old man. Will uh, sit right. on your bed every night, and you can talk to him about boys. You can hold his hand, and and now they wonder why I have a beard fetish. But they're like, I loved, I loved Jesus so much. You can take long walks on the beach with our friend, right? Yeah. It gives you piggybacks, the footsteps in the sand. He was carrying me the whole time. I'm like, Jesus, I want to kiss you on the face. Yeah, uh, but it sounds like you were into it oh, for so a while. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, well, I love feeling feelings and mm -hmm. Bible delving and feeling mm -hmm. one with the universe or something. I don't know. Mm -hmm, feeling mm -hmm. is feeling is good. But mm -hmm. it's mostly because I just, I've always been an outsider and I have a very vivid imagination. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 
hence crushes on boys that will never, never. like me. Yeah. And <laughs> like, going to them to be stalked. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, it's the same thing. I kind of had a crush on my mailman for a while, but I was like, <laughs> he comes to me. Yeah. So it can't be stalking. <laughs> like, it's <Right>. not. <laughs> He's there for He's other coming reasons. Coming to me. Yeah. So, no, I'm a terror. I was. I was a weird, like, I've always written poetry. I've always written in a, I have, like, my first journal from when I was seven still. Yes. And my very first entry is about boys. Like, it's seriously about being at my brother's baseball game and staring at Jordan is so cute. And I'm going to all my brother's baseball games and getting a suicide soda and sit there and oh, like, suicide Jordan. sodas. Right? And I it's, relate. like, my first entry when I was seven. Yes. So, so my brother's older incredibly successful wife kids right like really house looks like a pottery barn you know they open it up there's never any dirt or cat hair even though they right. have multiple cats it's like i don't get it no I, <sighs> not the like well the lifestyle but also the, the cleanliness that you're talking about i've experienced that and i'm like wow they pay for a house they're rich enough to have a house cleaner <laughs> that's yeah. all it is it's just but like five cleaner. minutes in the bay area you have a collection of dust come on that's true and I live downtown, so like Geary Street just throws dirt yes. in the air, like just black dust all over my world. Yes. But that's fine. I've learned to love it. Did your brother also leave the Bay Area like your parents? Yeah, or? he's up in Seattle. Okay. Up that area up in Washington. San Francisco light. Right. Yeah. But no fun. All suburban. Yeah, yeah. All just like singing yeah. songs to God on the guitar with the kids and going to church and okay wow hanging out with their rich friends drinking expensive wine you know yeah so that's the benjamins yeah the benjamins okay they've got they've got all the benjamins it was just you and your brother yeah, as far as kids brother. okay mm -hmm. and what about um friends growing up in in danville did you have a crew um, or did like did you find other you said you called yourself an outcast i'm a did you have much, other outcast friends or kind of in high school but i've, I've pretty much been a lone wolf because mm -hmm. i went to christian school from kindergarten through like almost the end of seventh grade and mm -hmm. the very first year in kindergarten it was awful um i had a teacher mrs mowers god i hope she's dead <laughs> and she seriously she was yeah. so mean yeah. and i remember being five four or five because i was young when i got into kindergarten and we all do memorize bible verses when you memorized a bible verse everyone would get an ice cream cone little tiny ice cream cones but i memorized my bible verse and she gave me graham crackers and she pulled me aside and she's like fat little girls don't ever get anywhere in the world you oh should really eat the graham crackers God. now the irony is that graham crackers and the ice cream cone probably had the same amount of calories right but what it did is it separated me from the class and it did make me an outsider because the teacher basically fat shamed me in front of the whole class Dude. so then i was like different yeah. and i'm the one who did the bible verse and performed it and did so great and i didn't get the ice cream what the hell right so that was like the beginning of weirdness with christianity of you have to be a certain way for god to love you you have to be a certain way for people to love you that's and it has a lot to do with the way you look which is weird because it's supposed to be about like your spirit or your soul and then yeah. at the same time i was getting this very like external Kate Moss, be skinny. Although that's way before Kate Moss. That's like maybe the Twiggy age. And they're like, be, right. no one listens to you unless you're skinny and pretty. And it wasn't like, oh, you're smart and you can read and no one else can read. And that made me different too is I could like read when I was three or whatever. And so oh. when I was in kindergarten, I was reading Laura Ingalls Wilder and everyone else was learning to read. And so they put me in a corner with my books and everyone else would do stuff as a group. So I think that my outsiderness kind of started then and yeah. it was the same kids in the class from kindergarten through like seventh grade so i was known as like the fat weird dork throughout mm. that whole time and then teachers just 
I mean, from year to year, it was just part of that school. And yeah. it was pretty it sucked, but. Well, also, fuck any group that says you can't have ice cream. <laughs> In general, like. I know. Yeah. I mean, and also, graham crackers are not a consolation prize for ice cream. I love graham crackers. Not a consolation prize for right. ice cream. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Anything else about your Danville growing up oh, that you God. want to talk well, about? I, mean, I can talk about anything. It was awful. So, well, that was the beginning of. When I was in kindergarten and all that stuff, I ended up having an eating disorder for okay. years. Okay. And I remember being like in third grade vacation Bible school, and I remember sitting in the chair and wearing shorts and putting my toes, being on my toes, because I felt like when my legs were down, they spread out and they looked so fat. Okay. And so I was like in third grade, like up on my toes, like trying to make my thighs look skinnier, Shit. which is such a weird thing for a third grader to be thinking no, about. Right. Right? Like... But I'm thinking about all the people who made you feel that way. Right. And the society. Yeah, yeah. So constant. And that was just, but I think Sad. that's just the, but that's the thing now is that it made me tougher, I guess. And I feel badly for snowflakes now that don't get bullied because did it make me a better person? Like right. maybe yeah. or not. I don't know. Yeah, it built defense. It's like, a, you know, right. You, you learn how to react and. Defend yourself. Right. You, you, uh, hopefully. Well, we no, have. I learned how to put on a mask and wear frosting because people uh, like okay. cake, but they like it better with frosting. <laughs> and just a lot of a, a lot of vomiting because yeah. it's a rich girl's disease. Like, I can't afford to be bulimic anymore because I'm on food stamps. But, right. like, I didn't realize at the time that I was it was really good for the economy because I was, like, four <laughs> times the consumer because I was right. consuming so much food and then just not eating it. Yeah. And I mean, years, like 13 years, I struggled with that. But wow. from early on, like, right. and it was, this is the craziest thing. The thing that sparked it is, I don't remember if you, if you remember different strokes. Oh, yeah. So the older sister, Dana Plato, yeah. there was one episode where she had bulimia. Mm -hmm. And she, it was her birthday, and there was a cake. And she ate the whole cake, and then she threw up. And I watched that, and I was like, oh, you can do that? Yeah. That's such a good idea. Okay. And I knew that, I mean, I'm sure that they meant it to be like, don't do this. And I was like, what a fucking good idea. <laughs> you could eat a whole cake? Yeah. So a lot uh, of my youth was around, was all that. Jesus, eating disorders, looking right, being perfect, mm -hmm. trying to be this image of what. Superficiality sounds mm -hmm. like a lot of that. Um, and also you, so you, sounds like you grew up in the, mostly in the 80s, late yeah. 70s, 80s, yeah. early 90s. Yeah. yeah. I think we might be the same age. Yeah. Born um, in 74. Oh, 73. Okay. We there are we the go. same age. Hey. Um, okay. Let's let's talk about leaving Danville. Okay. What was that like? Was it exciting? Did oh, you have a yeah. specific destinations in mind? Yeah, so I um I applied to all the, you know, schools in high school. So this is funny. 98% of my graduating high school class went to college. Wow. Which is kind of insane. That, yeah, that's... I'm not surprised. Rise. It was going back to the other things we were talking about. Right. Yeah. Everyone did. So I had a lot of choices, and um, I had gotten to a lot of UC schools, and mm -hmm. my parents were like, go to Berkeley. You'll be so close. And I was like, I'm getting the fuck out of Dodge. Yes. I want to be as far away from this as possible. They were like, but you could come home on the weekends. and won't that? I was like, no. Yeah. So um, I went to UC San Diego because I fell in love with it. It's just – it's so beautiful, and mm -hmm. the weather's perfect, and mm -hmm. I don't know. I just – I love the beach. I, I don't know. And mm -hmm. it's a great school. And they had a great mm -hmm. theater program. So I went I went to UC San Diego. And then I did some acid for the first time. And I saw God. And he, like, fist bumped me. And he was before fist bump. He probably high-fived me. But he was like, we're fine. Oh, good. He was like, you don't 
don't worry. All that stuff, like, it's like he's like, you and me, we're cool. Mm-hmm. All that other stuff, just don't worry about it. And just, you be yourself. It's cool. And mm. I was like, oh, thanks, God. This is great. And so I started, <laughs> yeah. So I, I started dropping a lot of acid. Like, in college, I did a stupid amount of acid. Okay. But I still got really great grades. Like, and one of the things that I... It's weird about just who I am. The more the busier I am, the better I do. Okay. And so one one it's a it was a quarter school in this one semester I took thirty six units, Whoa. which was like nine classes or something. Yeah. And I got a four point oh. Okay. And I was like, I could do anything. And, and you're doing, tripping and the I, whole time. The whole time. I was just wow. like on acid and studying. but I love to read and I love learning and like I love college and yeah. I just I'm I love school because it's the only place where you they tell you what they want, and then when you do it, they tell you you did well. Hmm. And then you have feelings of like, ah, because then I learned, in the real world, nobody ever tells you when you do well. Then right. the haters come in. The only way you know you're doing well is when everybody's like, you suck. Right. And it's right. like, wait a minute. I thought that you're supposed to tell me I'm doing well. Yeah. <laughs> and why didn't I follow the rubric? <laughs> so I, I, love, I love school. And especially going, you went straight, no, no years in between, nope. just straight out of high school. Straight Not out. a lot of people I'm finding who now who did that will be like, I love school. There, a lot of people are like, oh, I wish I took some time off, or I only learned loved, loved to learn, learned to love learning later in life. Sure, but you liked it. Oh, I love it. Okay, yeah. Was I it mean, because you were tripping the whole time? Maybe. <laughs> well, and I didn't. I mean, I didn't do that much acid in graduate school, but I did smoke a lot of pot. So right, because it's easier to understand poetry when you're high. Yeah. Like if you read someone's poem and you're sober and you're like, I just don't know what they're saying, and then you smoke a little doobie, it's like, oh, I totally get it. Yeah. I get it. So it's write drunk, edit sober, read high. Yes. Okay, yeah, got it. Exactly. <laughs> adding yeah. read high to the end. Of Absolutely. That. Yeah. And I love. I'm, I don't want to sound like this fucking dilettante, but I love. I love reading. Yeah. I. I just. It's like one of my favorite things to do. That's okay. Yes. I. Yes. That's a good thing. Um. Uh. So you had mentioned. I, I want to talk about your your grad school and going to SF State, but I think before we talk about that. Because you grew up in the Bay Area. Yeah. Do you remember your first time to come to San Francisco? Do you remember your early impressions of the city? This would have been probably in the late 70s, 80s. Yeah. So I remember going in on the BART with my dad. He was taking me to work with him. And I was probably nine. But it, I know we'd been in the city earlier than that. Well, there's two stories. Okay, here's the one that I remember of us driving in. And it's really weird. Um, my grandmother's cousin was a nun here in San Francisco. Okay. And she died, and they made us all go to her wake, and it okay. was weird. And I was like six or seven, and it was hot in the car. And I remember going, I remember going over what's now like the Geary to go down Fillmore, and then there, we went like up another thing, and mm-hmm. like, so we we're down on like the deep the by Clement in the Richmond. Yeah, and that there must have been a there was a nunnery. I mean, I don't remember where, but I remember that. I remember being in the city and. It, being like, okay, this is weird because there's no buildings at this part of the city. Right. And then there was a nunnery and there were all these nuns and there was a dead nun and it was gross <laughs> and they wanted me to kiss her and I was like, I don't oh, even know this lady. Man. And then one nun, she like kneeled down and she's like, are you going to be a good little nun when you grow up? And I was like, no! Oh my God. <laughs> and now I sort of regret that decision because then I would have had like God take care of me or I could have lived for free or something in the Even city the and nine. not have to deal with men. It'd just be so much easier <laughs> to just love Jesus. <laughs> yeah. But I remember that as a child. But then also going in 
to my dad's work, which was downtown with all the big buildings. Mm -hmm. And mostly what I remember are the questionably housed and seeing people sitting on the street with dogs and signs and asking my dad, like, I have changed. Can I? And he'd say, I've seen this guy for 10 years. Mm. And he'd keep walking. And mm -hmm. I'd be like, but they, they're, and he's like, if you're going to do something, buy him dog food. And I was like, mm. okay. But so that's what I remember was ha feeling feelings for people that were clearly indigent in some way. Right. And my dad being like, just step over them. Don't worry about it. They've mm. been here forever. This is their choice. And yeah. I was like, oh, that, Ugh. okay. Yeah, that callousness that's pervasive. Unfortunately, but, but it's the Vietnam. It was, I mean, it's, and you'd think that that particular age group would have a heart because right. most of the people on the street were from Vietnam and right. Vietnam vets and they'd serve the country right. and everyone wants you to serve the country, but then they don't want to take care of you after. Afterwards, and yeah. then that whole Reagan thing where he dumped out oh. all the mental institutions and just threw them all in the street in San Francisco. <laughs> and then our questionably housed population just exploded and nothing. We didn't. Yeah. And so my dad came in every day. He drove the van pool and sometimes we'd drive in with him in the van pool and that mm -hmm. was super cool. Mm -hmm. Um, what about fun trips? So not funerals and not your dad's work. Did you do fun stuff in the city? Um, no, that was mostly Oakland. So okay, we can get, talk about Oakland. Yeah, we'd get char siu bao yes. from Chinatown in oh, Oakland. Yeah. God, and yeah, we that had sounds a, really good right now. <laughs> well, and we'd get we'd get like six steamed and six baked. Yeah, and in the in the on the way home, it'd be like, okay, everyone gets three of them. You can save them for later, or you can eat yours now. And then someone would always eat an extra one, and it was always like, I only got two. But we went to <laughs> went to Fairyland a lot as a child, yeah, and did the whole key, the little yellow key in the box, and like sitting in front and listening to the stories and the all that stuff, and the little petting zoo. I remember that from being little. Nice. Um, and the Oakland Zoo, we did that way more than the San because my parents probably think we're afraid to bring us into the city because they mm. especially with my dad working on fifth he thought it was just dirty and gross and it's so funny that like i live so close to there <laughs> right and, I love it. Right. and i'm like no, sixth you're... street i'm not afraid like yeah. whatever but um yeah so i have more memories of oakland more but, fun more fun memories. fun time but like i mean danville was just we lived on a cul-de-sac and we played oh. kickball yeah. until the sun went down you know and, yeah and um it was a lot of just church trips but that was all out to the that was all to like the delta and stuff and okay and i we did trips to um, the redwoods like in santa cruz a lot when i was a kid mm -hmm. spent a lot of time in the redwoods so that was mm -hmm. nature camping like or uh summer christian trips. summer camps yeah okay at yeah camp yeah itself. Okay. christian summer camp from fourth grade all the way through high school like yeah. praying to jesus out in the woods all that kind of fun stuff right yeah a lot of singing songs to god uh as opposed to fist bumping or high fiving, right, yeah, the, yeah. But although being out in the, I mean, it is religion is almost a hallucinatory thing oh, because sure. you do you're praying to some hallucination. I mean, in your mind, you have an image, mm -hmm. and is that not a hallucination mm -hmm. of something that I don't know pictorially has been passed down? Yeah, I and mean, I think I think a lot about God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, awesome or construct of god or whatever right well you you met him in a in a trip i so. met him yeah yes so in, a, you, in a large disco ball like inside yeah. a disco i was like oh that's so cool yay god so i guess let's go back to lee um so you graduated from uc san diego graduated from uc san diego and in what then 1996 okay and then i moved back up here to davis and i 
got a teaching credential. Oh, cool. So I lived with my, my now ex-husband. He went to veterinary school at Davis. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't know what to do after college because I had a theater degree. And I'm like, what am I going to do with this? Right. So I got a teaching credential. And I taught in Woodland for a couple of years. I taught at group homes. I did special ed. Um, and then... Did you like it? Did you like teaching? I you know... I loved special ed. Regular education was really difficult even yeah. back then. Yeah. A lot of entitled kids and parents, and it was difficult. But special ed's amazing mm -hmm. because a lot of times the parents weren't even in the picture. So right. you just had a relationship with the kid, and you could – and I mean, back then they called it severely emotionally disturbed. But now they took the S off because they found it stigmatizing. Mm. So it's just emotionally disturbed mm. students. But I really enjoyed that because I felt like I was making a difference, and I was young, and I didn't know what I was doing with my life. But I taught for four years – and then I, I wanted to get into graduate school, and I realized I, I can't be a teacher and get into theater graduate school. I need to do theater. So I quit my teaching job, and I started a theater company. Up in? Down in San Diego. Down in San so Diego. So we were up in Davis, and I did a bunch of a theater with uh, Woodland Opera House and a lot of community theater and worked with them for a while. And then my we got my ex-husband got a job as a veterinarian in San Diego so we moved down there and that's when I became like a bourgeois housewife oh. and we bought a house and we had a Lexus and we had a wow. BMW and we had a what other car did we have we also had a Ford Explorer we had you know two dogs and two cats and a spa overlooking the canyon two people three cars right two people three cars yeah, yeah. and okay. uh two people four bedrooms and we thought our yeah. house was small right and I was like oh we're just we downsized from our other house in Vista what would he do but um <laughs> So yeah, we lived, I had this ex-husband thing and I had a theater company and then my ex, my husband's, my ex-husband's, my ex-mother-in-law, she was like, why don't you get a real job? So I quit my theater job and, cause I had been applying to graduate school and I wasn't getting in. I wanted mm. to go to UC San Diego and they finally, Les Waters was the guy who let people in. He's the cousin of Roger Waters. Anyways. Oh. And he said, you're never going to get in here. You have to go away. He was like, go to Pennsylvania and you can hmm. come back. Go somewhere else. But he's like, you went here for undergrad. We just, right. we want we want our program. We only accept two a year. It's, it's not you. Yeah. And I was like, oh, but everything <laughs> works out for a reason. So it's fine. But I, so I quit my theater company thing and I started working for Ethan Allen. Oh, as a visual merchandiser. Insurance. What do they do? I'm, they sell furniture. The furniture, right. <laughs> Insurance, yeah, whatever. Yeah, and I, so I was a visual merchandiser, so I was basically like a high-paid set designer because I had this big store, and I was like, I'm a set designer. This Somewhat is so creative. Fun. Yeah, super creative, yeah. but also cog in a corporate wheel of consumerism. Right. And then I stopped taking birth control because I thought I wanted to get pregnant with my husband, and I realized that birth control is a systematic calling of critical thought from women's brains because I wrote a novel in six weeks. Okay. Like, I got off birth control, and I wrote a you novel in six weeks. You gave birth to a novel. Exactly. Fuck and I was yeah. like, what happened? And I started being really creative again. And Fiction I was like, or? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, wrote a, I wrote a novel. And, um, and then I was like, I think I want to go to graduate school for writing. Yeah. And then I quit my job, left my husband, and got a DUI like in the same month yes. in 2007. And then I won a free ticket to Burning Man to be a chef. And then at <laughs> Burning Man, they were like, they were like, you should move to San Francisco. And I realized there's really no reason for me to be in San Diego. I can't drive anymore. I, I can't substitute teach. I can't get to any of my work, any things. Right. I don't know what to do. So I just moved to San Francisco. And that, that <laughs> so, so now looking for a grad school is a little different because you're looking for a writing program well, versus theater, right? Right, exactly. So 
into the, after I wrote that novel, I was like, ooh, I need to go to graduate school for writing. And I met some girl outside of a bar, and she was like, you should go to San Francisco State. They've got a great program. Look into it. And then I looked at home. I was like, oh, my God, they do. Yeah. So I moved to San Francisco. What year was that? 2007. Okay. And then I applied during that year for 2008, and I got in. I couldn't believe it. Nice. So I got in for fiction, and I did the two-year program in fiction. And then I was like, I'm not done with this. I love writing. I'm going to get my MFA in poetry. So I applied to continue on and get my MFA in poetry. Nice. And I was doing all these open mics, and I was doing all these things. And I in, the ta- in the city? Oh, in San Francisco, everywhere. Name drop some places that you Well, the you old were... Amnesia. I yeah. used to do tons of poetry readings at Amnesia. I got nice. the opportunity to work with, so, I mean, so many. Forum from C- CCSF, their um, publication is so beautiful. And oh, they yeah. do all of these shows. I've written and, for them. Aren't they amazing? I love Forum. And they 15 put the, years ago They or put the pictures next to the poems. And nice. I love, I love Forum so much. And yeah. they were doing shows. And um, so I got to read with them, and through the lit, the Lit's Crawl, Lit Smash, all that Quake stuff, Quake. the Quake, Lit Quake, and I got to read for that a bunch, and work with CCSF and their Poetry Center, blah 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 blah. Nice. But then, in 2011, I was still in poetry school, and I was like, "There's not enough stage time here." Mm. And so I realized at the open mic I was doing at Amnesia, there were comedians, mm. and I I knew some of them from here from doing radio at mm. Mutiny Radio, and they were like, you know, five punchlines is three minutes. Why don't you try it? Like, mm. you do poetry. Like, why not just do this instead? And I was like, okay, okay, I'm going to do it. So I wrote five punchlines, and it was three minutes. And I went up at Amnesia, and that was July 17th, 2011. Was it a different – were you in a different mindset? Like, was how, how different was reciting poetry versus doing comedy? They're, they're exactly the same thing. Okay. Um, they're crafting language to elicit, elicit an, a remote, an emotional response. response. Yeah. So – Poetry is just, you know, like the poem about my third abortion is boring, but the joke about my third abortion is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, <laughs> so it depends. And with yeah. poetry, oftentimes, even at amnesia, I'd be like, if I take my shirt off, will you listen to my poem? And people will be like, <laughs> yes. And so I take my shirt off and in my bra, just like recite poetry. Nice. So people thought that was funny. Mm-hmm. So it was a pretty easy transition. And yeah. there's so much more stage time in comedy. Did you make kids laugh or like your family laugh when you were a kid? Or was this was this like spontaneous comedy had entered your life? Well, I mean, I've always like I've always been the outsider and I've always had to deal with when you deal with trauma through humor, at least mm-hmm. I did, or by being the center of attention. Mm-hmm. Cheerleading was great cuz I people were looking at me and I mm-hmm. liked that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I I mean I tried to tell stories as a child, but usually I was sort of shamed. Like, sh- children should, should be seen and not heard. Right. Or, you know. Shut up, kid. Have a graham cracker. Right. I yeah. wanted to tell jokes and stories and be on stage. I was a, I, I was a ballerina for 23 years. And okay. I was classically trained in piano for 13 years. So I performed in more traditional, classical right. ways. Right, 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 um, right. But give me a microphone and have people laugh. Because I'd rather laugh at myself before anyone else could laugh at me. Okay, so fair enough. that's kind of the way that that happened. So your story about getting started in comedy, though, you mentioned that you had you knew people from... Can, yeah. we, go, can we go back a little bit? Sure. Um, um, and talk about, what is this place and right. this thing so, that we're doing right um, now? I joined, the, when it was Pyrocat, I joined in 2008, and I was on a show with Diamond Dave Whitaker, who did Common Thread. Mm-hmm. And I'd read short stories. Mm-hmm. And then after a couple of months, it was so disorganized. And I was like, hey, man, you know, I can stage manage your show for you. And he's like, oh, that'll be great. Oh, I think that'll be, that'll be incredible. <laughs> because I'd run boards because I'd done theater for so long and right. I'd stage managed so many shows, blah, blah, blah. 
So I started stage managing a show, and I was like, oh, my God, I love this. I love radio. I love microphones. And then I got my own show, and I was doing lots of things here and performing and a lot of poetry and spoken word, blah, blah, blah. And then in 2011, we had to kick out the guy who was running the place because he fled the country and he'd embezzled some money. Mm. And then the FCC had come down on us because we had an illegal terrestrial tower, so we were Mm. broadcasting illegally. Mm -hmm. But we thought that under the FCC guidelines of 1942 that if you're at a time of war, you can have a shortwave tower. But like America's always at war, so we're good. But we were in operations and skirmishes, so once he said mission Uh. accomplished, the Anthony Bourdain thing happened and he came here and then like, we got a lot of press. And then the FCC came after us and tried to fine us $10,000. So what happened yeah. was we changed to Mutiny Radio because we're like, I don't know what Pirate Cat was. There's no fine. Yeah, we're none of us are that. that. Who yeah. are they? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. in 2011, Pirate Cat became Mutiny. Okay. And it was run by like a board of people. Okay. And then in 2013, they were all like, fuck this shit. We're out. Oh. And I said, no, no, no. This is, I've started comedy now. And without this place, doing my open mics, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I need this place. Yeah. And they're like, well, good luck. So I wrote... I wrote a business plan and okay. I brought it to the group and I was like, I'll take it over. And they mm. were like, okay. Hmm. So in 2013. You by yourself? By myself, yeah. Okay. So there were five people running it. And then in 2013, I was like, I'll just run it. And now it's 2021 and it still exists. Awesome. So that's that. Can we talk quickly about the Bourdain thing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I just watched uh, the documentary that's coming out oh. next month, Roadrunner. Um so for me, this is timely. Um, and I actually forgot until you just mentioned it, that he came to the cafe, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he, he had a bacon maple latte. And he, you know, talked into not that particular microphone. We have new microphones now. But he sat in a chair like that right mm-hmm, there and mm-hmm. um, was interviewed. And then it was on the TV and it was crazy. And Was um, it cool? Were you here for that? No, I wasn't invited. Oh, okay. I wasn't part of the cool group. But, oh, um, got it. Okay, okay, okay. I was here when jo- um, George, um, not um, – Parliament, P-Funk, George, oh, Clinton. George Clinton was here. Came I was on. here for that. I awesome. gave him some pop brownies he ate. Fuck yes. And that was awesome. I was like, I gave him pop brownies. And the, one of the people was like, are you sure he's performing tonight? And I was like, "This George Clinton it's, smokes crack. Like, yeah. these two pop brownies are going to yeah. do nothing to this man. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, so Anthony Bourdain was here. And uh, I mean, it's exciting. This, a lot of people have been through this building. I got to interview um, Paul Mooney once on the phone. Nice. So that was R. exciting. And yeah, I mean, everybody. Wow. And Anthony Bourdain, R.I.P. Super like sad. Yes. The <sighs> yeah, documentary is um, is really good. Uh, watch it. I watch it. It's a lot. You know, it's like biographical, so it wasn't rough for an hour and twenty minutes, and then it goes into the last two years of his life, and oh. it gets it's waterworks. Oh. Yeah. I'll watch it. I love um, that guy. I love all his books. He was an incredible writer. Totally. But the the good thing about the documentary, I don't want to take us too far down that road, but is that it has the people from his life are in it. Wow. So, right. Wife, um, daughter, so, so you get the, oh. not the, she's in it, but not like, uh, in the, like it's footage. Sure. She's not interviewed, but Octavia and all that stuff. Um, way off on a no, tangent now. Good. So, yeah. So now like I, we made it through the pandemic. I was doing outdoor shows and we still nice. are. I love parklets. I've yeah. got a bunch of weekly shows and, um, I've had five, comedy festivals here the last one was in 2020 right before the pandemic like a week before the shutdown awesome. and so i'm gonna i'm excited i can bring it back in october mm-hmm. uh, the 10th through the 16th but this time i'm gonna do it at all the new venues i have because i gained so many outdoor venues through the pandemic and 
I'm really excited. Do you want to tell folks where those are? Yeah. Uh, every Wednesday at 7.30, we do a show with Asiento, which is a half a block from here. Mm-hmm. And Debbie of Asiento is amazing, another small business owner that made it through COVID. Awesome. And then Saturdays at 2 o'clock at Atlas, which is a block from mm-hmm. us in the other direction. Mm-hmm. And same thing. Um, they made it through. Yes. And it's incredible. So and happy. They have amazing sandwiches. And then the bar at Dolores, which is on 29th and Dolores. I do shows with them on Thursdays and the last Sunday of the month. Awesome. And, um, yeah, and I'm going to be, I'm going to hopefully be working with El Rio. And then I just talked to the owner of OMG cause he just opened Rakesh and he was like, I want to be in the festival. And I'm like, yes, 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 yes. of course. Oh my God, that'll be so great. Awesome. So they're, they're back open, which is exciting. And the festival you said is, is in October. It's going to be October 10th through 16th. I believe this year. Okay. Yeah. I I'm might just be getting married now. that week, but Ooh, I'll do my best. Thank you. I'll do my best to come to yeah, see that. Yeah. I got, I got my first STD from my first marriage. Okay. Yeah, sexually transmitted debt. That's what you get. That's what you get when you get married. Good luck. It's fun. Or maybe the kids these days are progressive. They call them STIs. Oh. So maybe it's more sexually transmitted income. Income. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. so good This luck. will be my third and my and my fiance's first. So she's like, third time's a charm. Yeah. I hope. I hope. Congratulations. Um, thank you. We have like three minutes and then I have to start another show. Okay, well then perfect. Joke workshop's up next. So that's the other thing we do at the station is on Mondays at 6 o'clock, uh, there's joke workshop where I run it like a graduate school poetry thing except mm-hmm. that it's jokes so mm-hmm. comedians do four minutes and then they get four minutes of commentary from nice. their peers and then it's an open mic and mm. then we also do fridays at six o'clock and it's a contest where comedians do four minutes and i invite audience to be judges yes. and then they judge the comedians and their five favorites all get booked shows with like paid wow. food and drink and how money cool. and the whole deal so how cool so that's what we do here for the community I and it's super fun my fiance she she's between jobs and <gasps> she wants to she's like always wanted to do comedy ah, I tell her to come nice. here I'm this her right here tell her to come to Mutiny Radio okay a couple of minutes so what I want to end on is what do you think of San Francisco I mean we're on literally the cusp tomorrow is tomorrow. when California opens yeah. what are your kind of hopes and visions for, for what San Francisco can be moving forward oh my gosh I hope that the San Francisco UBI that's funding a bunch of artists can continue and expand and be able to fund more artists so that we can value art as a, monitor, a monetary resource instead of putting all of our money into tech and realize that, that art is important mm-hmm. and that artists, that is a job mm-hmm. and that our work does have value and as people we have value and to to give us the opportunity to create that's i'm sorry we have to create i'm sorry i can't be in insurance i have to create right but we should respect artists and and value their gifts monetarily and if i could see that going forward in san francisco i'd be so happy bands everybody i remember oh, i love all the bands i love floating goat i love all the metal bands oh i'm so excited we're gonna get back like i get to see Shows, metal again yes Show, like yes <laughs> yes so but all of the, the the bands and the visual artists and the comedians and the I mean, even karaoke goddesses, just mm-hmm. everyone to be able to express themselves again. I hope that that can come back. And um, But I'm going to yeah. interject real fast. It's mm-hmm. for you. It's not a hope because you're doing the work. <laughs> you're yeah. helping bring it back if I Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are you on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. 
LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio, my friend. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny radio, my friend. You ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, 